Over the next few months, we're going to look at Jesus' final preparations before being handed over to be crucified. Understand that the events that we're going to be looking at and spending a lot of time with over the next several uh, months is something that happened actually only over a couple of days. Now, it's fitting that we would spend so much time with the end of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion because the Gospels do that very thing as well. Most of the Gospel material deals with the last week of Jesus' life and of that last week. Most of it deals with the last couple days of Jesus' life. John's Gospel is probably the most remarkable one in this, in this regard because almost half of John's Gospel is dealing with the last two days of Jesus' life. So that's something to keep in mind when you're reading through the Gospels. They purposely put an emphasis upon the crucifixion and then resurrection of Jesus. All of the Bible points to that climactic moment in history and the implications of that moment. The theme that immediately confronts us following Jesus' warning in the Olivet Discourse, remember, his repeated warning was to be ready, get ready, make sure you're ready. Remember several different parables he gives to really emphasize that point. Well, right on the tail of that, we come into this next chapter and we see the theme of preparation, the idea of preparation. Merriam-Webster defines preparation as the action or process of making something ready for use or service or of getting ready for some occasion, for some test, for some duty. The text before us presents several individuals who are getting ready for future events. And those preparations tell us much about each character in the drama. We're going to look at each of these preparations together. And we're going to learn from them, from the preparations, what's motivating each individual. Because you can't escape that connection. There's a connection between the preparations that we make and the desires and motivations of our heart. Preparations are merely actions that are taken in reference to some future reality that we desire to come to fruition. Or, you say it this way, lack of preparation for something is usually because we really don't want that thing to happen that is impending upon us. We usually put off preparing for those things which we'd rather not have to deal with, and we usually prepare for those things that we're excited about coming. You can tell a lot about the condition of a person's heart by the preparations that they make. The quantity and quality of preparation says much about what resides in our hearts. Preparations expose our plans. They expose our priorities. Right? This is why men get in trouble around Valentine's Day when they haven't made proper preparations, right? Because their wonderful wives in such cases are a little bit downhearted because they say, well, what priority do I have in your life? What preparations have you made in reference to me? You see, our preparations or lack thereof say something about the desires, the motivations, the priorities of our hearts. The situation that we find ourselves in with City Hall next door is just one example of this, but it's a very poignant example and felt might be appropriate to bring up this morning. Upon viewing the long-range plan of Oak Ridge North and seeing that Robinson Road is supposed to be redirected not only through our property but right through our sanctuary, caused us to stand at attention and go, what's going on here? Then to discover that they had placed a moratorium and all building projects within this zoned district, while they were legislating some new zoning uh, rules, gave us further concern. After attending some meetings and attempting to kind of forestall or stop the actions that were being proposed, we found that our efforts were futile. Even after convincing the zoning committee that the decision to rezone was being done a little bit hastily, I and mean, maybe we just need to slow down this process, and it was positioned against the interest not only of our church and school, but against businesses that are right here in the heart of Oak Ridge North, the city council still passed through the new zoning legislation. Now, no matter how much politicking is done in the midst of all of that, and I think we've been friendly with one another, City Hall and us, um, what is obvious is that the preparations that the city is making does not take into account the longevity of Oak Ridge Reformed Baptist Church or Oak Ridge Christian Academy staying in this location. Um, the new zoning legislation doesn't even allow for a church or school um, to be positioned here. So preparations are being made to transform the look, feel, and economics of Oak Ridge North, and those preparations indicate what lies at the heart of the city legislators, the people who are in charge. It just tells us what their heart is. They can't escape that. They can be nice and smile and say, we love you and we want you to be here, and say that with one moment, but on the other hand, all the preparations that they're making 
do not line up with that statement. Does that make sense? So we can see from the preparations what's really at their heart. Whether or not that comes from any ill will, I'm not saying any of that, but it is just a matter of fact that they don't see us being positioned in the middle of their downtown district in the long term. So it gives us some good things to thought through, and many of you came to our, long, our uh, future of ORB meeting, future of ORCA meeting, and as a result, we've decided that it's time for us to begin looking for a new home. And so we have some good options, and we're continuing to pray through that. And please do continue to pray about that, and let us know if you find any good pieces of land that we might consider for our future home together. Our plan is to stay within a five-mile radius of our present location, for those of you who aren't aware of all of these details. But it just seemed like such a poignant example. You see, the preparations that the city makes says something about their intentions and their motivations. But so goes it with all of us. The preparations that we make individually says something about our hearts and about the motivations driving us. We have a few examples of this in the text before us this morning. And I hope to challenge you to consider your preparations and plans. And this is the reason why I want you to consider what you do in preparation. Because what you do in preparation says something about your heart. You see, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? Next verse. I, the Lord, test the heart. I try the mind. You see, if we trust our own hearts, that's a very dangerous thing. You know, Disney and the like would like to tell you to trust your heart. The scripture says, don't trust your heart. Be wary of your heart. Be concerned about your heart. Be as much wickedness flows from the heart. But how do we really know where our heart is? How do we really diagnose our hearts? Well, one of the ways we can do that is by looking at the preparations that we make. What plans are we setting? What things are we putting in place as it relates to future actions? Because they say a whole lot about our hearts. The first thing I want you to note this morning is that preparations can expose a man's hatred. There are preparations exposing man's Hatred. And we have a couple of examples of that in the text before us. First, we see the chief priests, and they're preparing for murder. The chief priests are preparing for murder. They actually are engaged in a conspiracy. There's a murderous conspiracy going on. The chief priests and scribes and the elders of the people were told, gather together, and they gather together in the court of the high priest, the one being named Caiaphas. This is the same individual who had said earlier, not even knowing just how prophetic it would be, that it would be better for us for one man to die than for the whole nation to die. And he's pointing to Jesus. If we make him the scapegoat, it would be better for him to die and for us to you know, not die as a result. And the gospel writers pick up on this, this unknowingly prophetic statement, how true would it really be that Jesus' death would mean life for others. But we see Caiaphas. They're all meeting in Caiaphas' house and we see that there's an evil, collaborative plot that's unfolding. It, there seems to be no discussion about what to do with Jesus. The discussion at hand is, when and how will we do it? They've already determined what they want to do with him. It's matter, just merely a matter of strategy here. They already have an, a set agenda. They know what they want to do with this Jesus. They're plotting together how they might arrest him and put him to death. There's such... Sobering irony in this description. We're told that the days of Passover were coming. They're right there up on Passover. Passover, which is a celebration of how God preserved life, right? Remember, that whole remembrance is how the death angel, the tenth plague in Egypt, passed over the house of those who had the blood applied to the doorposts. It was a remembrance of how God had preserved the life of those firstborn sons within every house that had the blood applied the doors. Passover was to celebrate how God preserved life. And yet here we have the religious leaders on the eve of all of that plotting Jesus's death. The one who came to bring life, they want to put to death. Now we're seeing the effects of a long brewing hatred. This didn't happen overnight. <laughs> We spent lots of time in our Harmony of the Gospels, right? We've been working through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, roughly chronologically. And we've seen this over and over again in the interactions between the religious leaders and Jesus. They don't have good feelings for Jesus. As a matter of fact, they have a long brewing hatred for Jesus. They had long been seeking to destroy Jesus. 
Luke 19, 47 and 48. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. They were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do. For all the people were hanging on every word that he said. They couldn't find him doing something wrong, so they couldn't bring charge against him that way. And they couldn't just incite the mob because the mob liked Jesus. They're like, we're trapped here. We want to get rid of this guy, but we don't know how to do it. But we'd love to destroy him. We're looking. We're you know, they're just biting at the bit. We can't wait to do something to get rid of Jesus. So they collaborate together. They make a premeditated action here. Their, their concerns here are about the populace. They're concerned that if they arrest him right now and put him to death, and if it's done publicly, that it will incite a riot. That there will be a rebellion. Because this Jesus, this Nazarene, has quite a following. And they're concerned about what might happen. You understand, their concern is not the fact that they're putting to death an innocent man. Their concern is collateral damage. They saw Jesus' destruction, but they want to minimize the number of people who would be outraged outraged by such an action. This is just politicking. That's all this is. We know what we want to do. We want to minimize the collateral. And so the decision is to proceed with stealth. The only way we're going to be able to do this is if we do it in the shadows. We need to make sure that not many people know about it. Maybe we can slip this on past everybody. They had noted that Jesus' reception not many days before in the triumphal entry, remember? Riding in on a colt. There, hosannas, palm branches, everyone shouting and, and joyously running about. They had seen what had happened. They noted that not many days before this, Jesus was in the temple in the outer courts, and he's even, Gentiles are even coming to Jesus. He's talking with them, he's teaching people, he's healing people right there in the temple. He just cleansed the temple of all the money changers and all the ridiculosity, that's a word, that was going on within the temple. You see, the only thing that's holding back these religious leaders from their murderous intentions is cowardice. That's it. The only thing they fear more than this is what the people might do. And note this, that if the people rebel, their other concern, their further concern is, what will Rome do? You see, if we have a big rebellion going on within the middle of the Roman Empire, Rome's going to wake up. And when Rome wakes up and sees what's going on, they're going to come to the leaders first. Because we've seen them do it before. And we'll all be out of a job. Maybe killed. And so we don't like that idea at all. You see, that's all that's going on here. You see, their sinful, murderous hearts are just looking for an opportunity. Note this. It doesn't take the actual expression of sin for you to be harboring sin in the heart. This is why Jesus can say a man who hates his brother, it's as if he has murdered them in his heart. A man who lusts after a woman is as if he's engaged in adultery in his heart. You see, a sin can be harbored in the heart for a long time, awaiting an expression that's much down the line. Because in this case, the only thing that was holding back that sinful expression was fear of repercussions. You guys understand that there is, that's why justice, even in its imperfect form, exists today. Because there is some amount of lessening influence of sin by having justice in place, even when it's imperfect justice. You know, having something like the cap, you know, like, you know capital uh, punishment um, killing someone for killing someone else. Even having that in place gives a cautionary to a person before they choose to take matters into their own hands and kill someone. Right? This might be your own death. Now note that those things don't ultimately keep back sinful expressions, but they do hold them in check at least a little bit. In this case, the malice of these religious leaders is being held back for cowardice. And they decide, We'll wait until this big Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, passes. Once that's done, then we'll try to capture Jesus and do away with him. Okay, so those religious leaders, they're making preparations. Another person who's making preparations in the text is Judas. Judas is betraying, is preparing for betrayal. Judas is preparing for betrayal. And he's engaged in a very calculated crime. He's engaged in a calculated crime. He's one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot. And he goes on over to where the priests are. Luke tells us in his account of these events that Satan entered into Judas. Satan entered into Judas. Now, we can be certain that this was preceded by other things present in Judas as well. We don't know all that was going on within Judas, but we have some indication of moral failings that were already present and perhaps some amount of messianic disappointment that Jesus wasn't the Messiah that Judas was looking for. He responds to that generous outpouring of Mary, which we have read here 
um, which we'll talk about in a few moments. But over in John 12, 5, we're told that this is being said by Judas. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Then next verse, we're told this. Now, Judas said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. You see, on the outside, Judas goes, how dare this woman pour out all of this expensive perfume? We could have sold it and given the money to the poor. But meanwhile, that's not at all what's in the intentions of Judas's heart. He's upset because if that had been sold and bought into the money box, he could have taken some. That's what's really motivating. Externally, everyone else would have been like, oh, look at what a guy is you know, upholding the, the rights of the poor and trying to help them. You know? Meanwhile, his heart has nothing to do with the poor. I wonder how often that happens in politics today. How many people pander a legislative agenda saying that we're doing this for the poor, but in reality there's something else subversive going on? That's nothing new. Nothing new at all. So we notice that Judas is acting with his own financial interests in mind. How long that was going on, we don't really know. It's probably also the case that Judas had gotten wrapped up in thoughts of messianic exaltation that didn't involve things like crucifixion and death, you know? Just come and bring the kingdom. I want to be part of that. But when it doesn't look like it's going that way, and all the leaders are still against Jesus, and Jesus keeps talking about how his death is coming, like, what on earth? You know, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I wanted. And Judas is now trying to make the best, quote, quote, of a worse situation. Perhaps he had enjoyed being linked to Christ so long as that fed his selfish ambition. But once it became clear to him that Jesus was aiming at a different goal, Judas was ready to jump ship and get whatever he could out of the exchange. We don't really know. Whatever the backdrop for this moment, though, it is a distinctively horrible moment because we're told that Judas came under the distinctive evil influence of the devil. Satan has purposefully come into Judas to bring about some nefarious purposes. Judas was obviously aware of the religious leader's opposition to Christ, and he wanted to profit off of their desires to rid themselves of Jesus. By the way, this is the surest proof that a man can enjoy wonderful blessings, attach himself outwardly to religious gatherings and go to religious events, profess allegiance to Jesus, and meanwhile, all the while be lost. It is possible for a man to put on all the external trappings of Christianity. You know, a a fish on the back of their car, a cross around their neck, a Christian t-shirt on their chest. Going along with Christians, being roughly familiar with Bible verses, being able to converse with some amount of Christianese. And meanwhile, be lost. Judas was an eyewitness to Jesus' miracles. He was an ear witness to Jesus' teachings. He experienced the very thing that the men of old longed to see. The prophets who longed to see the coming Messiah. He saw it. He walked with God in the flesh. He stood shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. And he stood shoulder to shoulder with the disciples. Those men who had the greatest privilege of being discipled by Jesus Himself. But for all of this, Judas remained dead in his sins and trespasses. On the outside, he looked to be every bit as much a disciple as Peter or James or John. No one, not even the twelve, suspected him of hypocrisy. How do we know that? Well, you look a little bit further in the narrative, and Jesus starts to say, there's going to be one of you that's going to betray me. And everybody's looking around like, who is it? Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Who is this? And even after Jesus gives an indication that seems very plain that it was Judas that he's pointing to, they still don't quite get it. Nobody, the only way that this works is if, if, for them to have that kind of astounded, like, what's going on, is if they didn't suspect at all that Judas would be that kind of individual. See, Judas did a great job of putting on a facade. Sadly, there are many people like Judas today. Very good at putting on a face. Very good at showing an external thing that does not reflect what's on the inside. There's a great warning that comes to us in the story of Judas. 
that we not be content with mere external conformity to rules or patterns or cultural expressions of Christianity, but that what's needed is deep, true, utter, complete heart transformation. We need something done on the inside of us. Because only that will truly make a difference. The price of Judas's loyalty? 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. We see that this is no loyalty at all. If loyalty can be auctioned off to the highest bidder, then it is not real loyalty. If it's for sale at any price, it is not real loyalty. If I can put out any price and cause you to then change loyalties, then you're not truly loyal. Whichever direction you were before. Judas agreed to hand Jesus over and to help arrange the timing. He's an example of the destructive power of money love. We had read this morning, 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is, is a root of all sorts of evil. Again, we've clarified that before, right? It's not that money is the root of all evil. It's the, money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So not all evil flows from loving money and neither does all, all of evil flow from loving money. It, but, but all sorts of evil flow from the love of money. Judas might be one of the Greatest examples of that. He goes on to say, By longing for it, they have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I wonder if Paul was thinking specifically of Judas in that description. He should at least be included. Judas, however, is not the only one who's fallen victim to the destructive power of loving money. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery for money. Achan coveted and took a mantle, silver, and gold that was forbidden to Israel, thereby bringing consequences on the entire nation and death to himself eventually. Samson was betrayed to Philistines for money. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and tried to deceive Peter for money and died on the spot because of it. Most Americans today scoff at the idea of idolatry. You know, like, I'm not going to worship a Buddha statue I go into the Chinese or Japanese restaurants and I'm not in any way, shape or form wanting to get one of those little statues and putting it in my house and bow down and worship it, you know, and make fruit offerings to it or these kinds of things. I'm not engaged in any of that. And so we kind of scoff at people who do that. And meanwhile, I wonder how often we fall victim to our own idolatry. It might not take the form of a little golden statue in our houses, but maybe it takes the form of a brand new car in our driveway or maybe the house that we live in or maybe the clothes on our back. You see, anything that displaces God's place as supreme and first in everything becomes an idol. In the materialistic world that we live in, it is very easy to slip in such, into such idolatry. We ought to be deeply humbled by this. We need to ask God to guard our hearts. No matter where you are now, perhaps right now for you, you're just being honest and genuine before the Lord. Like, I really don't crave money and stuff. Thank the Lord for that. Thank Him for that. And ask Him to preserve that in you. Maybe for others of you, we all have different struggles, right? We all have different struggles. So maybe for others of you, that really is a struggle. You find your mind constantly thinking about money and possessions and stuff. You need to ask the Lord to free you from that. You need to ask the Lord for help and forgiveness of that. We need to remind ourselves of verses like this. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? What were those 30 pieces of silver really worth to Judas in the end? We need to remind ourselves of verses like, we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it either. We brought nothing in. We're taking nothing out. Or as we read this morning from Proverbs 30, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me the food that is my portion. Give me what is my daily bread. Provide for my daily needs, Lord. So that way I don't forget you and become self-sustaining, thinking that I've got enough and I can just go on my own, or that I have too little and I'm tempted to steal or something of that nature. Understand, this is a calculated calculation. (laughs) Judas is weighing the pros and cons here. And he made a choice. It was calculated. It was premeditated. It was purposeful. And now, just like the Pharisees, he's just sitting in a position where he's cherishing sin in his heart and he's just waiting for an opportunity to express it. There are a lot of people in that position. Cherishing sin in the heart, merely waiting for an opportunity to express it. I wonder how many cases of adultery happen that way. Coddling a sinful desire in the heart, waiting for a moment to express it. 
You see, if we don't deal with the heart motivations, then we're going to find ourselves in the destructive patterns of where that thought and intention will drive us. He was in a position where just sin was seeking opportunity. Mark and Luke tell us what should be plainly obvious even in Matthew's Gospel. We can surmise it contextually. That the chief priests were glad. The word there, rejoiced. <laughs> they rejoiced when Judas came to them. They've got joy. It's a sinful joy. When they hear of Judas' intentions, they had been waiting for a moment like this, some inroad to catch Jesus away from the crowds. All they needed was somebody like this, an insider, who could alert them as to when would be the best time to catch Jesus unawares. This arrangement with a traitorous insider simplified matters immensely for the priests. Judas would just tell them when was the best moment to strike. He would know. He was on the inside. They are just... So delighted. And if things didn't go so well, they had a scapegoat. <laughs> it was Judas. <laughs> one, of, one of Jesus' own. He was doing something weird. If things didn't go well, they could just cast it all upon him and say there's some kind of weird in thing going on there with Jesus and his followers. Judas accepts the money and he seeks a favorable opportunity, an opportune time. Ukairos, a well-timed moment, a suitable moment, a seasonable time. Luke indicates that the right time would be one in which Jesus was away from the crowds. They want to pounce upon Jesus when he's alone. It reminds me so much of how the devil decided to pounce on Jesus while Jesus is in the wilderness fasting. Remember that? Remember after those three moments of temptation in which Jesus is victorious where fallen humanity is not, and Israel certainly failed. Jesus succeeded in the wilderness where Israel failed in the wilderness. After all those moments, we're told that the devil went away for what? Until an opportune time. And now what do we see? Satan entering into Judas. And what is Judas waiting for? An opportune time. What are the chief priests and scribes waiting for? An opportune time. You see, sin is being harbored within the heart. It's all right there. Their preparations are exposing that. A cessation of conflict does not mean that hatred is gone. It can merely be a calm before the storm. Time alone does not remove hatred. Can I say that again? Some people think, well, we'll just sleep on it. And you know, finally the hatred will go away. It doesn't work that way. Time alone doesn't remove hatred. You might feel a little bit less of the effects of it. But it doesn't remove it. The only thing that removes that kind of deep-seated animosity and hatred is repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. That's what brings true healing. There's the religious leaders. There's Judas. There's Satan waiting for an opportune time. Preparing for that opportune time. Now let's consider by contrast, point number two, preparations which express man's love. Preparations expressing man's love. There we had an exposure of man's hatred. Here we have an expression of man's love. Jesus says that the day of the Passover is approaching. The feast of unleavened bread is coming. And there needs to be arrangements made. Mark provides us a little further explanation how the Passover was being set up here. Jesus sent two of his disciples. Luke tells us the, the names of the two. Peter and John. He tells them, go into the city. There's going to be a man that you're going to, who's going to meet you carrying a jar of water on his shoulder. Follow him, and wherever he might enter, say to that householder, the teacher says, where is my guest room where, the Passover with my, where I might eat with the Passover with my disciples? Jesus says, he's going to show you a large upper room, having been completely prepared and furnished, and once that is done, once you've seen the room, then you make the final preparations. Disciples went out, came to the city, found it just as Jesus had said. They walk into the city. There's a man carrying a clay vessel with water in it. They follow him back to the house. They say to the master, the teacher has need of his room. And he goes, yep, up, upper room, fully furnished, ready to go. It's fascinating how Jesus doesn't give him an address, uh, doesn't give him a name. He says, you're going to walk into town. There's going to be somebody walking by. Follow that guy back to the house. That'll be the house that we're going to. And there's an upper room all ready for us. Yeah? Again, just proof once again. Jesus does this over and over and over again. He could have just told them a name. He could have given them an address. 
He could have given them GPS you know, coordinates, but instead he gives them this, 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 these, these details like this. Jesus knows it's going to happen. He knows the future. He can foretell it because he's seen it. Jesus knows precisely where that servant would be, what he'd be doing when the disciples arrived into town. So follow him. He'll take you to the guest room. And once you talk to the master, you say that the teacher has need of... Interesting here, Mark says, my room, my upper room. It, it, it has the connotation that perhaps Jesus had made a prior arrangement with this guy. There's some debate about this. Not necessarily explicitly stated here. I kind of lean towards believing that Jesus had probably already talked to this individual on a previous occasion and said, I'm going to make use of a room at some point. This guy already has it set up and ready to go for Jesus and his disciples. But still we see something about that homeowner. Remember, the Passover itself was all about preparation, you know. The, the actual historical moment was all about being prepared for the death angel to come over the house. You better have that blood over the doorpost, otherwise you weren't prepared and you would see your firstborn killed. But even then, the annual expression of it in the Passover was all about preparation. Removing leaven from the house, making sure that everything was set and ready to go. All of the particular symbolic significances of every element of the Passover celebration. Here we see there's an upper room, all furnished and prepared for Jesus. This was a man who warmly welcomed an opportunity to set up a room for Jesus' sake. He was practicing hospitality for his Lord. We could say it this way. His home was a place where Jesus was welcome. Literally. Right? His home was a place where Jesus was welcome. You see the contrasting here? One of Jesus' own followers, Judas, willing to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Here's this man, this certain man. He's not even named for us. And he's got the whole room prepared. He's ready for Jesus to come with his disciples to celebrate Passover. You see, he had generosity-seeking opportunity. Right? The other guys had murder in their hearts seeking opportunity. This man has love in his heart. He has generosity. He has stuff and he wants to share it. He wants to give it wherever he can. He saw his resources as an opportunity to serve his Lord. And so the disciples find the room fully furnished. Then Jesus says, that word prepare happens several times in this thing. You know, you'll find a room fully furnished and prepared. Then you prepare it. Prepare the Passover. Prepare, prepare, prepare. The word happens several times in the text. It says, Peter and John, then you guys, you guys are going to make the final preparations for Passover. Most likely that involved the securing of the food for the feast. Shepherd explains, On Thursday morning, Peter and John, according to the custom, would go to the temple and provide for the lamb, which they must purchase and take to the priests who had to pass upon it. Early in the afternoon, the lamb would be killed in the temple court, offered at the altar, and after the blood had been poured out at the altar, and a certain part of the lamb was reserved for the sacrifice, the rest would be wrapped in the skin and taken home. Before sunset, the carcass would be roasted in barbecue fashion and made ready for the meal at the blast of the trumpet just at sunset. There's some amount of discussion. I'm not going to get into all of it here this morning. I'd love to engage in it further with you if you'd like to. But there's some amount of discussion about the exact timing of the Last Supper in reference to Passover. Um, I think that it is quite clear that Jesus was celebrating Passover on Thursday night, the day before Passover by our reckoning. Because John 19.31 explains that it was the day of preparation when Jesus was crucified. The day of preparation was the day in which they would prepare for Passover. So on the day Jesus is crucified is the day of preparation in John 19. So it must be noted here this, that the way in which we reckon a day is different even among some of the Jews. Some of the Jews reckon a day morning to morning, kind of like what we do, morning to morning reckoning of days. But for some Jews, they reckon days night to night, evening to evening. And so... What's interesting about that is it allows for this, this scenario that Jesus could celebrate the Passover on the evening of the Passover, the night of the Passover, and then the next day be himself crucified as the Passover lamb. Happening both on the Passover, the evening of Passover, which he celebrates with his disciples, the Last Supper, the Passover celebration, the Last Supper, and then the next day he would himself be given as the Passover lamb. Not only though, do we see this certain man preparing with love, but we see a certain woman preparing for burial. Now, this woman that's brought up to us is one that we've already looked at in a previous sermon some time ago. I stated in that sermon that I believe that chronologically the, the, this event doesn't fit here. That the event of this woman, and 
identified by John 12 as Mary, that when Mary comes in and does this uh, pouring out of the ointment, perfume, that this happens actually earlier in Jesus' ministry. But that Matthew and Mark have placed it here on purpose. On purpose. Let's look at it for just a moment. Good, good for us to be reminded of what happens with Mary's gift. She brings a gift that expresses what is otherwise intangible, is an expression of what's inside of her heart. And it's set in such stark contrast with what Judas is doing. You hear this, the the Pharisees are plotting, they want Jesus killed. Jesus says, I'm going to die in two days. They say, we want him killed, but we're going to wait until after Passover. Then insert story of Mary. (laughs) She brings in this costly vial of perfume. She dumps it over Jesus. She is liberal with it. She breaks it open, pours it over him. It's dripping to such an extent that she's wiping it up. It's this kind of expression of love. She's not merely anointing Jesus. She's soaking him. She's drenching him. There's so much excess going on here. Jesus indicates that what she's doing is preparing him for burial. That moment, I wonder how much Mary really understood. Was it that she was among the only ones who had a slight understanding of what Jesus had said? Jesus had said repeatedly before this, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. He said this several times throughout his ministry. But it seems like the disciples just can't still quite get it. They don't understand what he's saying very plainly. Now, they will understand in retrospect. But at the moment, they don't seem to understand. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will bring to you remembrance of things I've told you. And at that point, all of a sudden, it all becomes like crystal clear. It's like hindsight's twenty twenty. But I wonder how much Mary understood. We, we don't know. We don't know what was in their heart. It might just be that Jesus interprets her action in light of his full knowledge of what is about to happen. Or it might have been that she had a feeling that this might be her last opportunity to offer a kingly gift to her king. Perhaps she, in her time sitting at Jesus' feet, had led to an increased understanding of what was going to happen. This gift was given in love. It was birthed in love and given in love. Again, do you see the, the similarity here between the man at the house and here this woman with some perfume? The intention of the heart is love. And it's seeking an opportunity to express It's prepared and ready and waiting for a moment in which that can be expressed. Her act had value because the intention and motivation that was driving it forward was done from faith in God and love toward Jesus. That's what Jesus says to them. Why are you chastising her for this? She did this out of complete sacrificial love for me. And you're criticizing her and saying she should have given this to the poor. You'll always have the poor with you. You will not always have me. And she's expressing her love to me. You see, when someone operates from heart motive with this type of sentimentality, no gift is too small. The widow's two mites are not too small. Jesus receives that warmly. He rejoices in that. And simultaneously, there's no gift that's too extravagant. There's no gift too small. There's no gift too extravagant. What's motivating it is love for Jesus. This ointment was priced so high that few had resources to purchase it. It came at great personal cost to Mary. Some some believe that maybe it was even a family heirloom passed down because how did she even come across it in the first place? It was a kingly gift. It was a gift that would not be despised but warmly received by the Lord. You see, it's possible to give a wasteful gift when the gift doesn't fit the recipient. But what gift is too big to give to Jesus? You can never waste a gift on Jesus. There's never waste when Jesus is involved because he's worthy of it all. He's worthy of everything. You can waste a talent for singing by wasting it on futile things. Or you can use that gift in service to Christ. And it will be a worthy expression of that gift. Same thing with your mind. Same thing with your abilities. There is no gift too extravagant to offer to Jesus. And meanwhile... There's no gift too menial that he won't accept it. You see, if you've been saved by Jesus, then his love has transformed your heart. You have a sense of urgency within your heart. Watch this. Judas, he's waiting for an opportunity to express sin that's in his heart. Someone who's been transformed by grace, they're waiting for an opportunity to express the love that's in their heart. 
They've been transformed by God's love, and that just makes expression outwardly. A saving faith shows itself in fruitfulness. You become concerned about things you were never concerned about before. Before you didn't care about wasting your time. Now you do. Because you want to use your time in service to the king. Before you didn't care being absorbed with the world. But now you're worried that maybe you're not spending enough time with Jesus. Here's a good test. Do you think ever any Christian has ever regretted while on their deathbed praying too much? Have they ever regretted giving too much money to worldwide ministry and mission or the local church? Have they ever regretted spending too much time assisting those in need? Have you ever heard someone on their deathbed speak? They were concerned that they had spoke too many words of encouragement in their life. Or maybe they had written too many letters of love to their family and friends. Maybe they were concerned because they shared the gospel with too many lost people. Ever heard somebody regret that? Maybe they regretted working too hard to study and know God's word. Ever heard anyone regret that? Anyone ever heard regretting that they sang too many songs of praise and adoration to Jesus? Or maybe I forgave too many people in my life who had hurt me. Or I regret showing too much kindness to those who are my enemies. Isn't it fascinating when you put it that way? All of a sudden you're like, yeah, I would never regret any of those things. Matter of fact, I'd regret the fact that I hadn't done those things as much as I wished I had. You see, our preparations, our actions are an expression of what our motivations and what fills our hearts. So Mark and Matthew divide up the storyline, I think, on purpose. They put Mary's act of devotion right there, right in the middle of all of this. They go, look at what Mary does and then look at what Judas has done. I even wonder if perhaps Judas, in looking at that and saying, man, that should have been you know, given to the poor, quote, quote, I should have gotten some of that money. He's actually enraged at that act of devotion towards Jesus from Mary, and he's ready to deliver up Jesus as a result. What a contrast. Mary sacrifices great wealth to worship Jesus. Judas will sacrifice Jesus to worship wealth. This woman pours out 300 denarii in her act of devotion to Jesus, a year's wages, while Judas will take 30 silver coins in an act of betrayal against Jesus. Mary pours out a gift of love on Jesus, many times the amount that Judas accepts to betray him. As Mary lovingly prepares Jesus for burial, Judas greedily ushers Jesus to the cross. I even wonder if any of Judas's coming betrayal was spurred on by his rage for this whole situation. You see, Mary sees her possessions as an opportunity to make much of Jesus, while Judas sees Jesus an opportunity to make much of himself. Mary will gladly lay down her earthly goods to celebrate her Savior, while Judas rejects and betrays the Savior in order to get earthly goods. How many different ways can we say that? But before Jesus is betrayed by the traitor's kiss, he becomes the recipient of an anointing of precious ointment by a faithful friend. You see, preparation and then our outward actions following from that can demonstrate hatred, but they can also demonstrate love. Which leads us to consider the even bigger story that's being told. Point number three, preparations declaring God's love. Preparations declaring God's love. You see, we've taken a few moments to, to interact with some individual characters in this drama. But now what we need to do is take a step back and see the bigger story. Who are, who's the bigger character who's involved in all of this? And for first of all, we've got to consider God the Son. What preparations does God the Son make? Well, He prepares for death. Matthew 26, 2 describes this very plainly. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Remember in the preceding context, Jesus has just gotten done in the Olivet Discourse describing how He's going to come in glory on the clouds. He's going to judge the nations and rule over it all. This glorious, marvelous return of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That day is coming. But before that day comes, Jesus, right on the tail of that, says, in two days, I'm going to be crucified. He's going to come on the clouds. He'll be seated on the throne of His glory. Yet, in two days, He says, I'll be crucified. 
in the next breath, he prepares his disciples for coming death. Because in his first coming, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. He was preparing his disciples for the inevitable action that was about to take place. J.C. Ryle says it well. While, this, while the marvelous predictions of his final glory were yet ringing in the ears of his disciples, he tells them once and again of his coming sufferings. He reminds them that he must die as a sin offering before he reminds them that he must, uh, before he is reigns as king. That he must make atonement on the cross before he took the crown. You see, while eternal life is offered to all who call upon the name of the Lord, it came at great personal cost to Jesus. He died that we might live. He took the wrath of God so that we could receive mercy. Jesus fulfilled the Passover in its fullest expression. He is the Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. His death and blood provide the covering for our sin. His resurrection is our hope and our life. We see God the Son preparing for death. And lastly, we see God the Father preparing for sacrifice. God the Father preparing for sacrifice. Now remember, the chief priests, scribes, they're plotting. They convene together. They want to see Jesus arrested and killed. But what was their biggest fear? That this not be done in public that this not be done until after the feast is over. After all of the Passover celebration is done. That's their plan. God the Father has a different plan. Remember, while the nations may rage and the rulers may take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, we're told in Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at them. He says, the nations might take up counsel and determine what's going to take place. And he who sits in the heavens laughs at it. As if you're in charge, God says. As if you could determine how this is going to go. As if you're the one that's bringing all these events to, to, to take place exactly as you've decided. You see, God is bringing His all-wise counsel to pass even through the plotting and scheming of evildoers. Jesus predicted exactly what would happen. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be betrayed and crucified. The timing of Jesus' crucifixion was no accident. God ordained the exact moment that the truest, purest Passover lamb would be sacrificed the one and only sacrifice that could take away sins once and for all, His own Son. I like the way that John Calvin said it. Christ was not unexpectedly dragged to death by the violence of His enemies. He was led to it by the providence of God. Our confidence in the propitiation is founded on the conviction that He was offered to God as that sacrifice which God had appointed from the beginning. Those who had no other design in view than to ruin Christ thought that another time would be more appropriate. But God, who had appointed Him to be a sacrifice for the expiation of sins, selected a suitable day for contrasting the body with its shadow by placing them together. What He's saying is that God had chosen that moment, the very one that everyone pointed forward to the Passover lamb, to be the moment which Jesus would die. Even these vain plots by these evildoers couldn't stop that from happening. They wanted to wait until everyone was gone. They wanted to make sure this wasn't a public display. God the Father said, no, it's happening now in the way that I've determined. You see, thoughts of the deliverance from Egypt and the protection from death and the forgiveness of sin that were all part of the Passover celebration were now being invested with new meaning. The types and shadows were giving way to the truest deliverance, the truest protection, the truest forgiveness that can ever be found because it's found in Jesus Himself. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. 
You see, in the midst of all the preparations, we must not neglect to see that God the Father had been preparing all of these events from before time began. From eternity past, God had planned every detail of our redemption. He orchestrated the rescue of fallen humanity. The crucifixion and following resurrection of Jesus is the most masterful, some people thought this, counter-conspiracy ever devised. The Jews may have nailed Jesus to the cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But, Acts 2, He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You guys ever seen one of those movies where it's kind of like twisting plots and like all this stuff is happening and you think like everything's going against the protagonist through the movie or through the story and at the end everything turns around and all of a sudden you're let in on the fact that the protagonist the whole time knew what was going on. It was working against all of those things and brought to the end result that he was looking for in the end. You know, there's no way this thing's going to twist and turn to a good ending, but it does because the protagonist knew what was going on through the whole story. Philip Reichen comments, When Jesus was crucified, the religious leaders got what they wanted. Judas got what he bargained for, and Satan got what he had been scheming to get since the day God made the world. Only, none of them got what they thought they were getting. For at the place where the conspiracy ended, the counter-conspiracy was bringing, beginning to bring salvation. Unlike Satan, Jesus knew what his death would accomplish. He knew that it would be the death of the devil himself. And the death of sin for everyone who trusts in Him, not to mention the death of death to everyone who believes in the cross and the empty tomb. God gave the most precious gift when He gave His only Son. Remember Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's told to sacrifice his son, the son he loves. And right before he brings down the knife, God stops him and spares Isaac and tells him, Take the ram from the thicket and sacrifice that in his stead. God spared Isaac and he provided a substitute for Isaac. What a much more full expression we hear when we learn that God would not spare his own son. The difference here is that God delivered his son up that we might be saved. He was the substitute in our place. God so loved the world that He gave His Son. Jesus so loved us that He laid down His life. How will we respond to that? Will you be like Mary, pouring out gifts of love upon Christ? Will you be like the homeowner, warmly receiving Jesus? Or will you be like the chief priests, plotting Jesus' demise? Or like Judas, betraying Jesus for worldly riches? Our actions and our preparations uncover our hearts. Our preparations expose either hatred or love for Jesus. What's in your heart? What preparations are you making? What plans are you setting? What do they say about the intents and motivations of your heart? It's my prayer that God's love would transform all of our hearts. And just think, for all those whose hearts have been transformed by God's love... That's not even the end of the story because Jesus who died then rose again and then He ascended to heaven and He's going to come back. And what is He doing in the meantime? Is He just twiddling His thumbs? Well, we know several things that He's doing. We know that He's making intercession for us. But we also know that He's gone to prepare a place for us. He's making preparations for us. We're going to a place beyond our wildest imagination. If you're in Christ.